All right, let's turn again to Genesis chapter 19 this morning. The Word of God is full of examples of people who started out well with many advantages and opportunities, but ended up poorly. And these are people who made worldly, carnal choices and paid a great price for them. You'll remember that Cain slew his brother out of envy and became a vagabond upon the earth. Later, Balaam will use his prophetic gifts for personal gain and be slain with the enemies of Israel. Solomon was a wise king who betrayed the Lord because of his many idolatrous wives, and that resulted in a divided kingdom. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament were judged for lying to the Holy Spirit, and they paid the price with their lives. Demas left the ministry with the Apostle Paul, having loved this present world. But among those who suffered because of worldly choices, perhaps Lot is the most tragic. Through his, his relationship with Abraham, he received great wealth and blessing. However, he chose to leave the land of promise and dwell in the fertile plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose the earthly over the heavenly, the seen above the unseen, and that which was passing away for that which lasts forever. So far in chapter 19, we have observed that Lot's worldly choices caused him to become spiritually dull. He is unable to recognize his visitors as emissaries from the Lord, and he does not greet them with the same lavish hospitality that Abraham greeted them. His worldly choices became apparent in his hypocritical actions, where he protects his guests according to the social custom of the day, but is willing to offer up his own daughters to a lustful mob. Those same choices also diminished his testimony when he tried to warn his sons-in-law of impending doom. And today we observe the rest of the story. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's gracious deliverance of Lot, even though he was a worldly believer. We find that the world was so ingrained in this man and his family that he has to be literally dragged out of the city in order to escape its destruction. And he ends up losing everything that he held dear, including his wife, his home, his possessions, and his morality. And the consequences of worldly choices are indeed tragic, so let's make sure that we don't follow the pattern we find in Lot. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning your blessing on the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that you help us to see how that moving in a worldly direction has extremely adverse consequences, not only in our life, but the life of others and even future generations. Lord, help us to be separate from the world, even as Abraham was. Your word teaches us that we are indeed in the world, but we are not to be of the world. 
Lord, help us not to set our affections on the things of the world, but on things above. And Lord, help us not to love the world and its things, but to love your kingdom and to serve it wholeheartedly. Bless us as we look into your word today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we read earlier this morning, the remainder of this passage emphasizes the mercy and grace of the Lord despite Lot's worldliness, and he's not delivered because of his own righteousness or anything that he does, but by the grace of God and the intercession of his uncle Abraham. And the fourth point we want to make from this story is that the Lord delivers Lot despite his worldly choices. And in that deliverance, we see some more indications of his worldliness. And the first thing we note here in verses 15 through 18 is that worldliness causes us to hesitate in our response to God's word. If you look at verse 15, we're told that the morning is dawning. So it's starting to get light out. The sun has not come up yet, but it's coming very uh, quickly, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is imminent. And so the messengers, the angels, urge Lot to hurry and get out of the city. He says, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. That's the word of God conveyed through these angelic messengers. He's already been made aware of that, uh, going uh, back up in verse 12 as they reveal their mission, what's going to happen, that the city is going to be destroyed. He needs to get out. Now, if that was me, and I assume if that was you, and you heard what was going to happen, there would be no hesitation in fleeing that city that you knew God said he was going to destroy. And uh, what does Lot do, however? We're told in verse um, uh, 16, while he lingered, he lingered in that situation. He hesitates. Lot faces great loss. We know he was a very wealthy man. We know uh, he probably had a really nice home in this city. We know he's a man of influence because he's a judge at the city gate, and he's going to lose all of that as the Lord destroys that city. And he's hanging on to these things because they're entrenched in his heart. It's hard to give up what you put your heart into for so many, many years. But this was no time for delay to wait for God to somehow change his mind. The situation is urgent, it's life-threatening, and yet he hesitates. And God never wants us to delay or hesitate when it comes to obedience to his word. We do not wait until we get around to it. We don't have to think about it or pray about it. If God says it, we simply do it. Even when it doesn't appear to be as urgent as Lot's situation, we still comply immediately with God's word. Obedience to God's commands is really always urgent business in the long run. Failure to obey is an act of putting yourself 
above the Lord. That's what the worldly do. Now, Lot's hesitation really kind of forces God's mercy. It provokes God's mercy in verse 16. While Lot lingers, and it seems like he's going to linger to his own doom, these uh, men, these angels in the form of men, they take his hand, they take his wife's hand, they take his daughter's hand, and they pull them out of the house, through the streets of the city, to the gate, and get them outside to safety. So Lot escapes the situation, not out of his own motivation or fear, but because of the Lord's compassion. Look what it says there at the end of verse 16, the Lord being merciful to him. Uh, They brought him out and set him outside of the city. So it's God's mercy that brings him out. I fear that Lot would have lingered to the point where he would not have gotten out safely. God had to do it for him because he was so attached to that world. And now they're given further instruction in verse 17. So it came to pass when they had brought uh, they had brought them outside that he said Now there's an indication again that God is speaking through these men they are his messengers and it's not plural they said but he said speaking for the Lord escape for your life do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed So there's a way of escape There's always a way out of being worldly and selfish. And that is to follow God's instructions. So they're not to look even behind them in their haste from this point to get away from that city God will destroy. And we certainly should not be a people who want to linger or hesitate when it comes to being obedient to the word of God. Secondly, we see that worldliness causes selfish bargaining with the Lord. Look at verses 18 to 22. We do have to give some credit to Lot. And here is another indication of that righteousness that the New Testament said Lot had. He's recognized that what the citizens of the city want to do to the two men who have come to visit him was wrong. But his suggestion to resolve it was also wrong. Uh, his, his understanding of what they were uh, saying to him, he views as wrong. But look at verse 18. Then Lot said to them, please know my lords. He addresses the messengers and he says, wait a minute, hold on here. And he goes on to say, indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. So he recognizes that these men are emissaries of God and that they have shown him grace, favor, that which is not merited. And he's been compassionate and merciful and in helping him to escape from the city, coming and warning him what's going to happen, and then pretty much pulling him out of the city. So he understands that the mercy and the grace of the Lord to this point. 
But then he says something, again, we perhaps cannot understand. But I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. So what's he revealing here? He's revealing a lack of trust and faith in God's deliverance. He complains that he can't escape to the mountains. Why? Well, he's afraid that some evil will overtake him. Well, if he stays in the city, it certainly will. But can he really understand, can he really believe that God will not do what he has said he will do? Can he believe uh, this when God has sent his messengers right into his home Those messengers have taken him out of the city. Why would the Lord all of a sudden then allow evil to overtake him? Only to let him die uh, on the way to the safe place. It doesn't make any sense. And it indicates an ulterior motive in the heart of Lot. And he begins to make a plea. Now remember, when the messengers revealed God's will... Or, uh, or when God began to reveal his will to Abraham concerning uh, the destruction of the cities, that Abraham also began to plea with the Lord. But it was certainly a different kind of plea. Let's take a look here at what Lot wants to happen. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. So Lot is trusting, and again, in what he perceives to be the safe place. What he perceives to be the best place. God has said escape to the mountains. God has proven that he will deliver him, but Now, Lot wants to bargain with the Lord again, and he's looking at things from the worldly point of view, from his point of view, and he's really kind of setting aside what God says needs to be done. Uh, When Abraham became aware of God's will, what did he do? He appealed for the city on the basis of the righteousness and justice of God, that he would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And so he bargained down uh, to the point of ten righteous people being in the city and God sparing it for those ten righteous. And I would imagine in the mind of of Abraham, he was thinking of, of Lot and his family, and maybe his extended family. And so there would uh, either have been six or eight people in that immediate situation. And so only two more people in the whole city of Sodom had to be righteous for God to spare it. Of course, we've seen that that was not the case. That was not true. But you see, Abraham was interceding for others, for the salvation of others, if you will. But Lot is interceding for himself for what he wants to see happen. Even though the city of Bela or Zoar is just a little town, uh, he, uh, it's still one of the cities of the plain. 
Its name back in chapter 13 was Bela, one of the five cities that rebelled against Kederleomer and caused, of course, Lot to be uh, taken captive in that situation. So Abraham really is saving him twice. And so it's apparent here that the world is still in the heart and the mind of Lot. So he pleads for the Lord to spare just this little place for him and he can go back to the city life. Now one commentator put it this way. His argument betrays a lack of faith a jaded spiritual evaluation of justice, his selfish plea that God spares Zoar as a place for him to live without regard to righteousness functions as a foil to Abraham's plea for Sodom on the basis of God's compassion and righteousness. And how like so many people today who get caught in a jam And they begin to pray and they begin to plead with God for themselves. And they might say something like, oh, Lord, if if you'll just do this little thing for me, I'll be a better Christian. Or, oh, Lord, if you get me out of this jam, out of this predicament I got myself into, I'll start going to church and I'll be more involved. And we could go on and on for a pleas of that nature. But as soon as the Lord answers, what do we do? We go back to the same old, same old. And again, we see the mercy and the grace of God in sparing this worldly-minded man in verse 21. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also. Again, related to the grace of God, the favor, unmerited favor. And that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. So he spares this smallest of the cities of the plain for the sake of Lot, just one righteous soul. But really, it's not an answer to Lot's plea, but Abraham's previous prayer not to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And he's got to arrive there before the Lord can begin that destruction. And that's why the city became known as Zoar, which means little, uh, in commemoration of Lot's uh, selfish bargaining. Now let's take a look at what happens next. And we see here that worldliness often causes us to lose what we thought was gain. Verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Now, in the ancient Near East, sunrise was symbolic of justice and the time when uh, city courts would often meet. It also stands in contrast to the darkness of night where those evil deeds uh, are often committed and where the city tried to commit a horrible crime against the guests of Lot. Now the Lord rises in the light of his judgment 
upon the wicked cities of the plain, and we've seen that it is just justice. His action demonstrates his righteousness against sin, his wrath against sin, his mercy in not sweeping away the righteous with the wicked, and it also is a reminder to us of the certain destiny of those who will not receive the Lord Jesus Christ in the final judgment of the world. And so what does the Lord do? Verse 24, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So this is something that comes directly from the Lord like the flood did in chapter 6. It's a direct retribution, a direct judgment that he brings. And he also may have used uh, some of the natural uh, resources around the cities of the plain because we know that in that area there were tar pits. And so if, if uh, fire, lightning, and brimstones coming down from heaven, it's going to torch those tar pits and add to the conflagration. So God's judgment is final, it's thorough. All the people uh, die except those in Zoar. Even the vegetation is consumed. And so Lot, because he chose in a worldly way what he thought was the good life, what he thought was best, loses everything he held dear. He loses his home. He loses all of his possessions. He loses his place of recognition in society. He loses his power in the city. And we'll see that he even loses his wife. And how tragic to put our faith, our trust, our hope, our living in that which is passing away. And we may not lose what we set our heart on in this life the way that Uh, Lot did, but if we set our heart on the things of this world, we're only going to experience them for a few short years, and then we have all of eternity, uh, which we did not really prepare for, which we lived in such a way we can't be rewarded there. So we will lose, in some respects, the things that Lot lost. We can't take these things with us We certainly want to build up our treasures in heaven, not on earth. So again, uh, when we set our minds on the wrong thing, when we think that the things of this world are gain, we're going to find out that really they were very costly. Then we have, as this section closes out, the responses of two people. One is the the wife of Lot. The other is Abraham. And so we have the response of someone who's, again, worldly, someone who we have seen as righteous. We're told in verse 26, But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. So Lot's wife looks back, and she's destroyed with the cities of the plain. The verb to look back there does not describe a furtive glance as you're fleeing, but a longing gaze. 
And she likely stopped her flight to turn back to look upon the city that she loved and that she longed for, and that cost her her soul. That worldly gaze slowed her progress enough to be caught up in the swirling sulfur which encased her body in salt, and surely she was consumed in the rain of brimstone. In contrast to that, Abraham looks upon the city from a safe distance away in verses 27 to 29. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So he is in his home, Hebron, which is 3,000 feet above sea level. And before the men left for the city, he escorted them a certain degree. He's able to see from a distance uh, where the location of these cities is. He may not be able to actually see them, but he knows where they're at. And so he comes out to the same place some 30 miles away, and the conflagration is so great, it says uh, that... uh, he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. It's like our looking at a distant fire, and we can't see the fire, but we can see the smoke raising up. And so he's aware that God could not spare the cities because ten righteous were not found. We're not told exactly what he was thinking. But it seems to me he'd be wondering if his nephew Lot had escaped or was among the tragic casualties. What we are told is that when God brought his judgment in verse 29, that God remembered, not Lot, but Abraham. And because he remembered the prayer and the plea of Abraham, he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So again, it was not the righteousness of Lot that saved him. It was the worldliness of Lot that got him in that position in the first place. But it's the prayers of the saints and the mercy and grace of God that brings him to the place of safety. So again, we see this contrast between Abraham and Lot and the choices that they made in their lives. But Lot's tragic story does not end here. It continues in one more terrible scene. And in the rest of the chapter, we see that worldly choices impact future generations. Verse 19, excuse me, verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. So we see that Lot is still controlled by fear, as he was when he escaped Sodom. He's not controlled by faith. And he eventually leaves the city that he pleaded for God to let him escape to 
And he goes off to the mountains where he, he originally was supposed to go by God's command with his daughters. And uh, Lot didn't feel safe there. Why wouldn't he feel safe in that city that he had put his heart in? Well, you know what? After what happened to the rest of the cities, it may well be nobody felt safe in the city anymore because they were judged. And it could be that nearly all of its inhabitants fled to the mountains someplace where they thought they would be safe. And sadly, there's no indication here that Lot drew closer to the Lord after escaping the catastrophe of Sodom. He doesn't build an altar like Abraham did. He doesn't call upon the name of the Lord like Abraham did. And again, we begin to wonder about the righteous character as the scene unfolds. And we see in verses 31 to 35, Lot's daughters, although they had been taken out of Sodom, it's clear Sodom had not been taken out of his daughters. And they devise a plan to ensure a worldly progeny. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. So they're still thinking along those worldly lines, the customs of the earth, the customs of the world. What we've been used to our whole life, the good life, the ways of the world, and in their thinking, <clears throat> either they believe that nobody is left, except for maybe the inhabitants of Zoar, and at any rate, nobody's left who is a man that we can marry. And we're going to be destitute, and when we die, that's just going to wipe out our line. And this is what they're thinking. They're thinking along worldly lines of what they ought to do. <clears throat> and again, there's no indication they're thinking in any way but the world, what they've been used to, uh, what their traditions have been, what they once thought was the good life. They don't consult their father about this. They don't pray to the Lord. Worldly ways have consumed them, and they can only devise a worldly way to ensure that they will have children and their father will have a name that carries on. Incidentally, we don't ever hear again of Lot in Genesis. Well, their plan is utterly repugnant to us. Even in the ancient Near East, this would have been considered heinous. But we have to remember where they came from and what their lifestyle's been and that this is an extremely wicked place in the face of God and there's nothing there to combat it, even in Lot's home, it seems. So they carry out their little plan. Verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that he, we may preserve the lineage of our father. You remember what happened to Noah? Same issue. He got drunk and bad things happened. So now they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know what she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink him wine tonight also. You go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. That's the excuse. 
And then they made their father drink wine that night. Also the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. How sad. How heinous in the eyes of God. So their plan works out according to, to what they devised. And one commentator put it this way, very succinctly. The one who offered his daughters for the sexual gratification of his wicked neighbors now becomes the object of his daughter's incestuous relationship. To be seduced by one's own daughters into an incestuous relationship with, uh, with pregnancy following is bad enough. Not to know that the seduction has occurred is worse and to fall prey to the whole plot a second time is worse than ever. So again, we see the, the spiritual dullness of Lot not knowing anything that's going on. And so worldly choices take us in a direction that sometimes results in unimaginable consequences. And Lot's worldly choices adversely affected the morality of his own daughters and the world was so ingrained in them that they not only devised this heinous plan, they carried it out. And we see the long-term impact of those worldly choices. In verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And Moab sounds like the word from my father. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, from which comes Ammon, and that means son of my kin. So the nations of Moab and Ammon come from this illicit relationship. They develop and they grow on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, a little north of the region where Sodom and Gomorrah were. They're no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. And as time moves forward, they become deadly enemies of God's people, the nation of Israel. And just prior to them going into the land, hundreds of years later, they commit sin with the Moabites, and 23,000 of them are slain as a result. That centuries later, you see the impact of these worldly decisions. How can we think we're not going to see those things in our world today if we make the same kind of choices? Those choices don't just impact us and our immediate families. They have a profound effect upon the future. And if one generation of believers chooses the path of worldliness, how do you think that's going to impact the next generation? Are they going to be better? Only by the grace of God. <clears throat> And we're seeing the effects of this in the church today. When previous generations become more and more attracted to the world and its culture, it doesn't bode well for the church. We may think that we're largely free from the worldliness of Lot, but are we really? We may not go down the road as far as he did, but consider some questions based upon what we've looked at. First of all, are we spiritually sharp or dull? Paul wrote to the New Testament church of Corinth as carnal babes in Christ. 
They were worldly. They were envious. They were committing strife and divisions were among them. And they weren't treating each other with equality and respect. That's the way of the world. You know as well as I do that one of the major complaints of lost people toward the church, whether true or false, is its hypocrisy. Lot was a worldly man and he was a hypocrite. And the people of the world say, if you speak and you live the same as I do, you act like I do, then why should I listen to what you have to say? And then that leads to the fact that our testimony is is totally worthless in the eyes of the world. It's ineffective and hollow. If they don't see any kind of change in the life of a professing Christian, well, then why should they change their lifestyle? Why should they be any different? And then when the word of God is presented to us, preached, taught, whatever it might be, and it convicts us or presents us with some clear command, some teaching, what do we do with it? Do we ignore it? Do we excuse it in our lives and apply it to somebody else? Or do we do what it says? Do we obey? And we're very good at seeing the need for change in other people, but we're a lot more hard-pressed to see the need for change in our own lives. And how will our decisions now affect the next generations, our children, and their children, and their children, and on down the line. Uh, Will we help them be separate from the world, or will we encourage them to continue down the line of worldly choices and its tragic consequences? And then let me even get a little bit further in observations and step on some toes today. When we refuse to become a member of a local body of believers, is that a spiritual choice or is that a worldly one? We're supposed to be citizens of heaven. Why then won't we become a citizen of the earthly expression of God's kingdom, his church? When we absent ourselves from meetings of the church, including the prayer meeting, is that a worldly choice or is that a heavenly one? Isn't that giving way to earthly business rather than putting first the spiritual business? When we give minimal involvement to the ministries of the church in favor of our profession, hobbies, entertainment, whatever, isn't that a selfish and worldly trade-off? When we give a minimal or paltry amount of our funds to the church compared to the mass that we earn or make, isn't that an indication of our love of the world, the things of the world instead of the things of God? And of course, we could make other applications. But we need to see that all of our choices fall into one or other of the categories. They are either worldly and carnal, or they are heavenly and spiritual. They follow the pattern of Lot, or they follow the pattern of Abraham. May God help us to see the areas of our own worldliness, confess them, and turn from them. Let's ask God's blessing as we close. Heavenly Father, we realize today that because we are of flesh, 
that we have great temptation from the world in which we live. We have been greatly blessed in this nation because it is so prosperous. But sometimes, Lord, that leads to our spiritual demise. Help us, Lord, to be people like Abraham who are willing to separate from the world and all that that means and set our affections on things above and make choices that we know are clearly supported by your word. Lord, help us to make the changes where we need to because of your mercy and your grace and the power of your spirit. We ask you, Lord, to work in our hearts today through the word of God that's been preached. We ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.